Well, as you can probably see, uh, we are taking a break from our series on eternity, which we're going to pick up this coming Sunday. Um, and the reason we took a break is, is because it is Confirmation Sunday, and we want to celebrate uh, with our confirmants, and, uh, and so we're, we're going to be doing that in our second service, but uh, I wanted to just kind of talk a little bit about what does the Christian sort of journey look like, and I think that's something true that, that we can talk to our confirmants about, but I think that's something that we can probably all relate to and all, all kind of think about for our, ourselves as well. So I would like to start out by looking at a passage from the Gospel of Matthew, and the scene that we're going to be looking at today is one where we see uh, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they kind of see the power uh, of Jesus and, and his rising power um, that's happening in, in their country and, and fear that change will, will bring to their own sense of power. Um, they, they start to, they ask him a couple questions and so they continue to try and trap Jesus. So I'd like for us to maybe just dive right into our text. And we're going to be looking at the Gospel of Matthew chapter 22, and we're going to be looking at verses 15 through 22. And it says this, then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity, and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites. Why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin you used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, Whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. And so they left him and went away. It is clear from kind of the get-go in this text what the Pharisees and the Herodians are doing, right? They are attempting to trip up Jesus in order to lessen his power and his sway. Uh, Basically, he's becoming too big of a threat to their way of life and they desire to find any kind of way for them to be able to stop him. And, and, and they start to do that by probably kind of the slyest way that they can possibly think. They, they start by giving him compliments. Uh, they start to seemingly sort of give him uh, semblances of respect. Uh, they tell him that, you know, he's not somebody who's easily swayed by people, even though that's basically what they are trying to do here, right? And then they pose a question uh, to him that they believe is sort of uh, a lose-lose kind of question. They, they ask him if it is right to pay taxes to Caesar. Now, the reason that this is a lose-lose, or at least they think it is a lose-lose, 
is because if he answers that it is not right to pay taxes, then he is standing in opposition to the Roman Empire and, and their collecting of taxes. Uh, this would put him in even a more precarious kind of problem or position with the authorities than he actually already has, okay? It's not like he wasn't trying to, to, to kind of have a little bit of an uprising or, or, or a divine rebellion on his hands. And if he answers yes to the question that, that it is right to pay taxes, then, then he's not only a friend to all those Gentile sinners out there, but he's actually someone who is that same way to Roman tax collectors and to the empire who clearly were not seen in a good light. So in their mind, it seems to be like a lose-lose situation. And that's kind of why they're asking the question that they ask. Now, this was true then, but we see these kinds of questions asked all the time, don't we? Right? We see reporters in, 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 in our news stations, and we can just turn on the television and see reporters asking people in, in power, whether that's politically or whether that's something else, and they are asking them questions basically to trap them. Not to do good journalism, but to see if they can get them to trip up. And so we see this, not only that's true then, but we see the same thing now, okay? But what Jesus does, when he's asked this question, he does something a little bit different. See, Jesus desires to kind of break this false dichotomy that they are setting up. And the first thing he does in order to kind of break this kind of false dichotomy is he calls them hypocrites. Now, I don't know if you are kind of familiar with that term or, or even where that term kind of comes from, but a hypocrite was someone who played a part in a play. Okay, uh, I just saw that Shrek, Shrek is going to be the new play in town. I'm like super excited to see it, okay, at our, I think at our local high school. But um, a, a hypocrite was someone who played a part in a play, uh, and, and they had to play a part where they had to wear a mask. And they would attempt to portray themselves as, as somebody else. And so what Jesus is saying to them is that they act like they are the ones that represent the church, but instead they are representing something else. They are saying nice words to Jesus with smiles on their faces, but is with malice in their hearts. And so he says, you hypocrites, why, why are you trying to devise a plan against me? He then asks a follow-up question. He takes uh, a denarius from them, which was used to pay taxes, which had the face of the emperor on it. And it's inscribed with uh, Caesar. And the inscription basically reads, depending on the coin you were looking at, Caesar is divine, or Caesar is the son of, of a god. You see, during that time, there were more than uh, one type of currency that people used. Um, especially when it came to the Jews. Uh, Jews often didn't like using coins that had the emperor on them and, and the inscription that I, that I mentioned because they saw that it was a clear violation of the first and second 
commandment. And, um, and so instead, uh, many of the people in their, their everyday use used copper coins uh, for all of their kinds of transactions. It was only when they had to pay taxes to Rome that they used these kinds of coins because that was the mandate from, from Rome. And so this is the coin that, that Jesus asks for. And he asks them specifically whose inscription it is. And after they answer, his reply is this, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. The word give here is sometimes translated as, as render, uh, depending on the translation in English that you're reading. Uh, sometimes it says it give, sometimes it says render. And um, you may have heard this phrase in the same way, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Um, and what this really means is, is kind of give back uh, what you already is the emperor's. Um, this word was often used in other places in their culture to basically talk about paying back a debt. That, that there was already a debt in place and that this was rendering back or giving back to what you already owed. It, 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 was, it was in that sense that this word was often used. And so Jesus starts out by saying, give to Caesar or rent to Caesar what is Caesar. But Jesus doesn't just stop at giving his stance on what he feels about taxes. He then says, give to God what is God's. Now, there are a lot of people and, and commentators or scholars out there that have said that those second words were there only to cancel out the first words, but, but I really see this as that, that's not really kind of being the case. He isn't just trying to cancel the words that, that he just said because God is above Caesar, but instead he, he's trying to give an even, an even bigger perspective. It's not just a question of, of, of who you are loyal to, but that these two things are not not necessarily in conflict with each other. At times they can be. The world in which we live in can be operated within the larger context of our faith in God. Hey, here's the big question. I don't know if you looked in your worship folder this morning before we started and said, huh, Matthew 22. That's an interesting text for Confirmation Sunday. So why on, on, on Confirmation Sunday am I bringing bringing this up. Uh, this last week on Wednesday, we had our, our overhearing where all the confirmants stood up like adults and proclaimed the truth of, of what they believe. They, they all summarized collectively what they have learned over the past few years, but not only kind of talking about the catechism. And one of the things that I have loved that we have transitioned to a little bit is, is taking what those what those big theological questions that we ask about the, the first and the third article and about our commandments and about our Lord's Prayer, and instead of just regurgitating facts of what our, our catechism says, we ask them to do the hard work of putting it in their own words. Sometimes it's a lot easier to memorize something and just spit it back out than to actually think about, well, what does this actually mean in my life? And so they, they did that, and they summarized with their confirmants along with them what they have learned over these past few years. And, and, and as I think about it, there, there's something distinctly adult about standing up in front of the church and doing something like that. 
They actually all picked out life verses for themselves on, on, on something that, that God's truth has said to them and that's communicated something that means something to them. And they talked about why that verse meant something, why they picked that verse. And they, and they talked about the, the reality that, you know, some of them struggle with understanding, like, what, where, where am I going long term? And I don't know if, if, if God's going to be there. But, but when I read these verses, when I, when I hear of this truth from Proverbs, I'm reminded that God does have a plan for me. And I can, I can anchor myself in that, that there are times that, that I have anxiety and, and, and I don't know what to do with it and I get stressed out. And, and so when I hear this truth from God that, that I, I recognize that I can cast my anxieties upon him, that he will guard my hearts and my minds. There's something distinctly adult about that. What they have also done whether it was because they were uh, maybe at times dragged here by their parents, is they completed years of classes where they had to come to services. They had to write sermon notes, hearing God's words preached, just like they're going to hear right after in our second service. And, and they did that while some of their, their friends just stayed in bed. And, the, and there are times that confirmation can at moments feel like a graduation. Like, you finished! Praise the Lord! And because of this feeling of, of, of graduating, it can feel like you have done your part, and now you're not only done with confirmation classes, but you're done with, with church too. You did your part, just like your parents, maybe your grandparents, and, 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 and now you're You're done. The reality is, is that most people their age, by the time they graduate high school, don't stay in church. Statistics say, and, and, and the data says that, that 75% of students who were connected in high school by the time they finish college are no longer a part of the church, and most of them have fallen from their faith. Those are the statistics. So, so is that what this is? Is it like a graduation where you don't have to go back to school anymore? I, I transferred halfway through high school to a different high school, and so I, I didn't really necessarily feel a tie to either of them. And then next year, I have a 20-year anniversary of my high school graduation coming up, and I, I just don't feel like I want to go. I, kinda, I mean, yes, high school was nice, and they played an important role in, in getting me to a place, but, you know, I'm kind of done with that, and I don't, I don't really, really want to go back, to be honest with you. It's not because those schools didn't do a good thing for me. They did. But I don't feel that, that push or that pull. So is that what this is? I hope you, along with me, pray and hope that it, it's not. But after today, for many of them, there will be a lot of things and a lot of other options that will pull you away from having corporate gatherings, and being part of the Christian fellowship as part of your life and as a priority in your life. That church should not feel like a should in your life. But I think we can all be honest and say that there are moments it does. It can feel like that. Here's the thing. The truth is, is that the church will never be able to compete 
as well for your attention. If you want to hear good music, you will probably always find something that sounds probably better on the radio or on Spotify. If you want to hear someone speak and, and, and keep your attention, uh, movies and TV shows and streaming services will always do a better job. If you want to find better coffee, you can probably go anywhere. Um. Here's a, remember the debate that Jesus had about the emperor uh, on the coin, giving to God what is God's and giving to Caesar what is Caesar's. That's not an easy task. Uh, if we feel like we should come to church, but, but we want to sleep in, we, we, we didn't get our homework done on time, we, we, we want to do other things, we have sports we've committed to, we have dance competitions, I mean, whatever, whatever it may be, we, we might try to go to church at times, try to do, be good boys and, and girls, but that's only going to last until we want to do something else that seems much more interesting. It can often feel like giving to God what is God's does not seem as fun as giving to Caesar what is Caesar's. See, one thing we have to recognize is that our sinful nature will always pull us in the direction of self-centeredness. As Luther said, that, we, that what, what, what our, our natural tendency is to do is to curve inward upon ourselves. And so that, that, that's our, our natural sinful nature, but that doesn't See, here's the thing, that pull doesn't always seem so diabolical. Okay, sometimes we think it does. We can even make church about meeting our own needs. Sometimes we can push important things to the side for, for other good things. You see, Satan doesn't care which way he distracts you as long as he distracts you. This is true, am I right? I mean, this is true for our confirmants, but I'm sure you have all felt this way. If he can distract you with things that even our world would say are unhealthy, maybe like addictive substances or something like that, and he knows that you would succumb to that pressure and, then, and, and then, then, then that you will be pushed away because of those things, then he'll push you in that direction. But if he knows that you, you, know, you will do a good job of staying away from certain things and, and not put yourselves in situations that are not great, then, then he'll try to push you towards over-prioritizing things that are not necessarily bad. It's, it's sort of like that inflatable clown. You guys ever remember these things? I remember when I was a kid, you'd be kind of bottom-heavy and you'd push it, and you could push it in any direction, Right? It's sort of like the inflatable clown punching bag that, that maybe some of us had when we were younger, that, that he's willing to let us go either way, that we can fall away from our faith and neglect our corporate gatherings and living life in Christian community for things that, that are not necessarily bad, like always putting in overtime no matter what, that, that, that playing a sport or doing plays or focusing on our hobbies. Our adversary will push us in whatever direction we are willing to lean and he'll make us lean there. On another note, we can also convince ourselves that the time and place that we are, uh, that we are in isn't right to prioritize our faith, that sometimes we think that we are, are just too young to really make an impact. I'm just, I'm just a, a young kid. I don't really have anything to contribute. That's just plain wrong, okay? And I want to say that. If you think you're too young to contribute to the kingdom of God, you're wrong. 
God has given you many things and gifts, and he has you in the place he has you, and he's given you opportunities to live your faith out. But just as, as much as that is wrong is the idea that we are too old to make a difference. Sometimes we get this idea of retiring from service and that gets into our churches. Or we can convince ourselves that, that, that we aren't wanted or, or, or that we don't have anything to contribute because maybe we can't contribute in the way that we used to contribute. That's just plain wrong as well. When I first became a Christian, there was an, uh, an uh, older man in our church named Frank who was a part of the church. Uh, Frank was a retired HVAC technician uh, who came to Christ later in life after uh, he had lived um, most of his life on, on the streets and in the subway tunnels uh, through a struggle with alcoholism. And he came to know Christ as he was saved at the Bowery Mission. It's the oldest mission in New York City in lower Manhattan. He had lost many toes to diabetes and the, and the hard life that he had lived. And it could have been easy for him to just sit back and think that he didn't have anything to contribute to the kingdom of God. But Frank, week after week, spoke into my life. And he discipled me along with other men, and I'm so glad that he did that. I would have been worse off, and I would have not been able to understand Jesus as well as I do now if I didn't have men like Frank in my life. That he encouraged me. That he sat next to me and gave me the elbow to sing as loud as I possibly could to song, songs like we just sung earlier today. Now, the way he serves in the church and God's kingdom looks different from when he was younger, but that's the beauty of how God continually works in our lives. That's the beauty of it. What Jesus says here when, he's asks, who, when he asks whose image is on the coin is that if, it, if it's got Caesar's image on it, then give it back to him. But what he profoundly says to those that were there, and I believe that he's telling us now as well, is to consider what does God have his image imprinted on? Where, where has he placed his divine image? Where is his inscription written? Is it on coins? on paper money, on temples. He has inscribed on us, on you, and on me that we were all made in the image of God after his likeness and in his image. That we all bear the image of God. And, that, and that's not just even true for followers of Jesus, but every human being has been made in the image of God. And those who have put their faith and, and trust in him have been marked and given the Holy Spirit. And so when Jesus says, give to God what is God's, he's letting us know that we are his. That we are God's. That we bear the, the image and the inscription of the creator. Give Caesar money, but, but give God worship. Romans 12, 1 and 2, I'm going to put up on the screen for us here, says this, that therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices that is holy and pleasing to God, that this is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Offering our bodies as living sacrifices is an example of how we are to lay down our desires and our motives for the sake of Christ. We don't do this to earn our place or out of of obligation or our guilt, but out of a recognition of what God has already done for us. We don't worship God because we should, but because we were designed to. He imprinted his image on us. He created us to be worshipers of him. And when we give our our love and worship to to other things, we just don't function the way that we are are designed to. And when we are stuck in our our self-centeredness and our guilt, Jesus came and gave up his life so that we could spend eternity with him, worshiping with the God that we were designed to love. I, I hope the confirmations in our, our second service, and I hope all of us here today know that, that again and again, and each week we come, we're reminded of, uh, and amazed again the great news of the gospel of grace. Do you remember that you are claimed? Do you know what his design is for you? And are you rediscovering a newfound purpose? I hope you are. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, um, Lord, this message that you had for us here today. Father, we're thankful for, uh, Lord, the work that you've done um, in in the life of our confirmants. Um, Lord, as we think about just how you have started to write your um, write your inscription on their hearts and, and for them as they have heard your word and, 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 and meditated on it. And I pray that it, it, it stays on their lips. Father, I pray uh, and, I, and we praise you for what the, the work, not only in these confirmants, but the work in our own lives. Father, that you meet us where we're at and, and Lord, that there is never a place where you tell us that, Lord, that, that you no longer desire to use us as, to build your kingdom. Father, we're thankful for that. We're thankful for the new purposes and and the way that you use all things in our life according to your purpose if we allow you. So Father, we just thank you for that encouragement here this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen.